Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. But you can take something, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behavior. Welcome back to Obehave. You'll be very glad to learn that today we are joined by Dr. Grace Lorden, who is the founding director of the Inclusion Initiative, the director of the MSc in Behavioral Science, and also an associate professor of Behavioral Science at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Moreover, Dr. Lorden has recently published a book called Think Big, and she's here to tell us all about her experience. Uh, Welcome. Welcome, Dr. Lorden. Thank you, Kimberly. And please call me Grace. Okay. (laughs) Sounds good, Grace. Old habits die hard. Um, (laughs) I had the pleasure of studying with you when I did my own master's at the LSE. And I know um, that your research is expansive and far ranging of all the topics that are available to you, Grace. Why did you write this book? What does big thinking mean to you? So my research um, is really about understanding why people choose the jobs that they do and moreover why um, certain individuals are more successful other than others in an occupation beyond skills, ability and talent. So I've ended up studying things like unconscious bias, um, discrimination, also how changes at the macro level, like the, the fourth industrial revolution, actually change how people uh, proceed in occupations. And I've always had an interest in looking at differences across groups. And I found myself, maybe about seven years ago now, giving a lot of talks on to industry about behavioral differences across groups. And I used to be asked to do this a lot about gender. So speaking about the differences between men and women specifically. And when I would give those talks, I would talk about the differences in behavior and then I would talk about what can be done about making sure that men and women get to advance in the organization at the same pace and that we circumvent things that would be familiar to your listeners like affinity bias, familiarity bias, statistical discrimination. Um, And then I would kind of end the talk. And very often when you do these talks, there's very young people in um, in, in, in the audience and people who don't actually have power to make the changes that I was suggesting. So I would get these questions. Well, that's wonderful. But what do I do? I'm not a manager. I'm not in the C-suite. I can't make the level of changes that you're suggesting. And it really made me think much more about from the individual perspective. So what if I'm in my career and I'm not a manager and I don't have power? So I can't make changes to circumvent the biases in the way the behavioral scientists typically want to do. So I can't blind the recruitment process um, and I can't put structures in place to circumvent groupthink. And this is really how Think Big was born, was was kind of thinking about it from the perspective of the individual um, and not just women. Kind of, so over the years, there's been a number of people who've approached me because they've fallen behind in their career because they've believed that the biases of others or the biases that they hold themselves have been holding them back and really walking in their shoes. So Think Big is about allowing people to identify an occupation that they might want to do in less traditional ways than have been done before. And then once they've identified that, to allow them forge the pathway where they're pretty much in control of their journey and really encouraging people to take control of that journey. 
I love that. Having having read the book myself, I can affirm that it is incredibly empowering um, and is filled with very practical advice. Um, what I also found quite striking about it is that it's very accessible. The guidance is actionable. Um, and yet every page is deeply grounded in academic research and insight, um, which of course speaks to your own background, Grace. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, how you use behavioral science as a discipline specifically to get to the answers that you did? That's a really great question. So, you know, my, my starting point um, with this was really thinking about the statement, there's a replication crisis in behavioral science. <laughs> and people say that to me and I say, what do you mean? And they will, you know, they'll say, but that study doesn't replicate. And I'm like, maybe the question should be, why isn't it replicating in that, yeah. in that population? And that we look beyond the average and we look at the distribution. And, and that was really my starting point with this book in that, Nobody um, can give people one solution when it comes to um, choosing a career, um, when it comes to getting people to commit, when it comes to honing resilience. And really what I wanted to do was kind of take a step back and encourage people to read the behavioral science literature through the lens of what's in it for me with the mindset that when they try out the insights that behavioral scientists put in front of them, there's a, a, a positive probability that it will work, but there's also a probability that it won't actually work for you. So really taking this experimental approach to building the future, the, the, the future that you want. Um, and the book is really written by then thinking about what are the different stages that people have for their career journey. And when I look at the literature, I'm always looking through the lens of what is flow and what is stock. So I always say this to my students, you know, Behavioral scientists have great imaginations. So when I go to the literature, there's lots of evidence on pretty much anything that you can actually dream up. But the question then becomes with, has this been studied in a number of contexts? Are there stylized facts that I can actually draw out that, that I know are true? So I've really focused the evidence on the balance between paying kind of homage to this idea of individual differences where I want the readers to be experimenters and really giving readers stylized facts that I know to be true in behavioral science. Um, and a lot of my mission kind of uh, at the LSE at the moment through the inclusion initiative and even through writing this book is really to, for me to get a better understanding of what are the core lessons in behavioral science? Mm. And what are the ones that are context or individual specific? And I think this is so important. Um, and you know, if you think about it, it through the eyes of a medic, medicine do this, right? So they'll often talk about what do we know is attributed to genetics? So, and what do we know that's actually attributed to the environment? And for me, moving that to behavioral science is about thinking about core lessons versus context-specific lessons. That's nice. That's nice. I think thinking about readers as experimenters is a lovely way to bring uh, people who might not be familiar with behavioral science as a practice into the fold and get them thinking differently. Um, I know through these conversations and others, um, when folks learn about different behavioral biases, they're often surprised to learn um, how impactful they are on their own thinking. You know, we're, we're blind to our own blindnesses, um, if we can say that. <laughs> um, but there's, there's, there's a name for that, right? So we call it bias blind spot. So the idea that I will see your biases, but I don't actually see my own. And, you know, people like us and people like the listeners who embrace behavioral science are much more likely to succumb to bias blind spot. And are much more likely to think 
this is not me. I'm, you know, I'm, I, this bias doesn't affect me than people who aren't embracing behavioral science in the same way, which is really interesting. So as we get more learned, we actually are much more likely to turn blind eyes to our own biases. That's crazy. And it's so important to keep ourselves in check in that respect. There was this one quote um, that I know that you mentioned in the book, you, you shared with um, some of your graduate students, and, and that is, our future selves are underachievers. And in contrast, our past selves are overachievers. I suspect that this has to do with with some biases as well. I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about this quote and sort of what it means to you in the context of this book. Yeah, so I mean, I've been very inspired um, by Thomas Gilovich, actually, um, all through my career, um, even before I would have called myself a behavioral scientist. And he has this research that really talks about how when we look backwards, we um, can see that we've achieved an incredible amount of time. And when we look forwards, we don't necessarily think that we can achieve much. And I like to do this with my students. And actually, I've done it in industry as well sometimes when, when I have groups that I can actually separate quite nicely in rooms. Um, back in the time when we actually were allowed to physically, physically go into industry, hopefully back soon. Um, so one group will basically be asked to reflect on, and the listeners can do this, to reflect on what are the things that you've achieved when you look backwards over the five years? And what are the major structures in your life? And this can go outside career ambitions. You can talk about getting married, losing weight. Maybe you uh, ran a marathon, you know, whatever it is that you manage um, to achieve that really sticks out in your mind and is salient for the five years gone by. And then looking forward. So thinking about the same. So what do I do when I actually look forward? Um, what do I what do I think will change over the next five years? And again, you can move outside careers and think about this. You know, maybe you'll plan to have a child or get married or 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 buy a house. So these kind of these these big moments. And and what's striking when I've done this with students and asked one group to look backwards and one group to look forwards is what you'll find is the lists are much shorter for the people who are actually looking forward. So we tend to underestimate what we can actually achieve in this kind of five year. And it doesn't necessarily need to be five year in any medium term period. So kind of three years, five years, 10 years. And I think kind of the root of Think Big is really about getting people to consciously move towards something over, over the next medium term. Um, and, you know, I, I, I say this in the book in the first chapter, this isn't the book for somebody who wants to have a major career, you know, change in three months or, or six months or one year. This is somebody who will put years into it. So you can think about the journey as a minimum bound of a year um, and kind of the average will be three, uh, three, um, three, to, three, to, three to five years and leveraging the fact that if we know when we look backwards, we've achieved a lot. What can happen if we plan something when we move forwards? And also, of course, embed these small steps that as behavioral scientists, we know if we do things routinely, very, 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 very small uh, steps, that they will have disproportional effects on the outcome that we're trying to change. Yeah, I, I hear you. Um, I think that sustaining motivation over that journey um, is dependent on really having a, a clearly visualized goal sort of that you're running towards. Um, and I love that the book challenges us to sort of think big about what that might look like. I also have a lot of empathy for the the people that might struggle to write things in that future self column, yes. um, especially knowing that what fulfills each one of us is deeply personal um, and having a sense of purpose um, can feel elusive sometimes, uh, knowing how many infinite options there are out there. 
um, or how unavailable some of those options might seem at the onset. Um, I would love to hear from you what advice you would have for someone who is looking to find that spark or find that sense of purpose and thread that through their career. So I think the best advice that I can give is stop looking at occupations. So stop saying, I want to be um, a nurse or I want to be a teacher or I want to be an engineer mm-hmm. um, and stop looking at industries. So stop saying, I want to work in clean growth or I want to work in manufacturing and really start thinking about what are the tasks that you enjoy doing and what are the activities that you enjoy doing. Um, and there's a section in chapter two that really talks to, and I'm hoping that, the, you know, that, that a lot of people who pick up this book will be in the situation actually that you just described because there aren't a lot of books written for somebody who just knows that they have ambition but doesn't actually have any idea where where they want to go and 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 the first thing to say is that that's actually very very normal um it's how i was before i found you know my current career um and it's how a number of people who i know who've ended up doing incredibly well have been in the past and i think what we have in common and what i'm really trying to get uh, encourage people to do is that we didn't focus on this is the one occupation and this is the label and this is the title that I want. And we didn't focus on this is the type of lifestyle that, that I want. I want to be able to buy um, a certain amount of things and take a certain amount of holidays. But we focused on the tasks and really were reflective of what are the activities that I enjoy doing? And then backing out, what are the type of jobs that I could do with that mix of activities and that opens up so many opportunities and if listeners are struggling actually to come up with the activities there's also a list in the book and and I will go so far as to say if you don't plan to buy the book send me an email and I will send you the table with the list of activities but it's <laughs> get you thinking about what do I enjoy doing and I think that has two benefits so firstly you're less much less likely to end up in a job that you dislike which when you talked about finding your passion is, is, is ultimately what people want. But I think secondly, you know, the world is really changing. So, you know, COVID will change the jobs that we have for society. Um, part of my, my job at the moment is I'm working with the UK government on their skills and productivity board. And we're thinking about just this. So how are things going to actually change over the next five to 10 years? And I think many listeners will end up having a number of occupations and being successful within those occupations. And if you are very conscious and reflective of the activities that you like doing, you can identify the skills that you need to get to do those activities as a profession. And also you'll have a much better idea of the type of jobs that you can do outside your current job, which is really like an insurance policy. So if globalization trends and the industrial revolution trends change your occupation, so it's no longer there there's going to be other places where you can take those skills and, 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 and really know, and really knowing that I think it is, is, is quite powerful for an individual. Yeah. The only thing that's constant is change, right? So I, I think that that approach would definitely make us more resilient um, when responding to that from a professional perspective. It's, it's really good to hear from you also, Grace, um, that it's normal to be confused. It's normal to feel sort of lost in this process. Um, I remember myself sitting on my living room floor with millions of post-it notes of things that I thought that I liked or brands that I was attracted to or opportunities that might be exciting. Um, Ultimately, that turns into a career somewhere down the line. Um, What was your own process like finding the career path that you're on now? So it's interesting. So, I mean, my, 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 my primary degree is in computer science um, and I ended up adding economics to that degree 
um, because I realized into the degree that I really hated computer science. And, you know, <laughs> and I reflect on that now. And when I, you know, when I, when I wrote, when I wrote this complaint, I actually went back and read my diaries. And when I was in that situation, I couldn't see anywhere where out actually. And yeah. I think kind of one of the learning moments in life is kind of recognizing that you always have choices and mm-hmm. sometimes it can be hard to see them, but really kind of opening up your eyes. And, and I was very lucky that I met somebody who pointed me in the direction of adding economics to my computer science degree. Um, and I know there will be people who um, who read the book and who are listening today who won't actually be that lucky in that particular moment to have somebody come along and give them a sense of direction. Um, and what I really wanted to kind of give to people is the, a toolkit to allow them actually do that for themselves, um, to really be able to pivot at times where they realize that they've made the wrong decision. And perhaps this isn't necessarily the career for them. And, and you know, one of the interesting, I think, kind of the, the, the paradoxes of the book is that it really tells you that you should really aim for something over the next five years but always be scanning the horizon for other opportunities um, and always be reflective of whether or not the activities that you've chosen are still the right ones for you. Um, and I think the, the interesting part of life is that if we move forward in that way, we're going to be much more successful than if we simply say, look, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I'm going to stay stuck. I'm going to stay stuck, um, stay stuck where I am today. Um, and then actually from the, from this degree in computer science and economics, I ended up um, leaving um, uh, my degree, not having a job, um, which was quite devastating for me at the time. The, the dot-com bubble had burst and I come back around to the idea of working in computer science. And at that stage, I did open my mind to the idea of actually um, doing a PhD in economics, which I did in Trinity. Um, and then I ended up working in an economics department, which was which was which, which was quite exciting. And then came to LSE where I found my um, my my. By the time I came to LSE, I had a love for um, studying behavior. And then I think at LSE I was officially confirmed with the label of a behavioral scientist. <laughs> you were redeemed. Um, yes, <laughs> that's wonderful. Um, it's a beautiful thing when you love what you do um, and you feel a sense of motivation and connection to um, the impact that you're able to create and the content that you're able to drive forward. Um, I myself grew up in an environment where maybe it's by the fact that I'm American, but passion is considered to be very important and fulfilling one's purpose is really important. Um, But I find that in the contrast to the adage, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Often the feedback that I get from my peers who have followed that guidance is that the reality is much closer to do what you love and you'll work super hard all the time with very little separation or boundaries and you will likely take things very personally. Um, do you think that there's a relationship between sort of finding your purpose through work and burnout? I think this is a really great question, Kimberly. I haven't seen any academic evidence, but I think I think that there is. I mean, I have burned out. I, you know, I, I, I have been exhausted. And I think, again, you know, to emphasize, I, I wrote this book really through the eyes of somebody who isn't able to perfectly stick to a plan, who isn't able to perfectly define their boundaries, and perhaps at times is somebody who throws themselves, like myself, into something at a level that's so deep where you might actually end up burning out from it. Um, and, And I think these books are really important because I think for the most of us, finding those boundaries doesn't come naturally. So Mm -hmm. if it doesn't come naturally to you and you're finding yourself that you're exhausted, you need to mechanically put them in. So I think on the one hand, the book is written thinking about some people who just don't have any time 
and really kind of asking them to make this very, very small commitment. But then what you've raised is a really important issue that there, that there will be a group of people who throw themselves into it with gusto and then find that all of the other things in their life are, are gone. And the last chapter, you know, chapter seven, resilience, really talks about this. And it really talks about making time for yourself. And it really talks about kind of consciously scheduling that time in a sense, in the same way that you would schedule um, time to work and really pulling yourself back from what I call busy work. Because mm-hmm. when I when I kind of said to you that I, that I burned out, when I actually reflect on what I was doing over that time, I was getting pulled into things that I didn't necessarily, that weren't adding value to the world and weren't adding value to me. So this isn't something that I should necessarily be focusing my time on. And I think if you have listeners who are feeling exhausted in work, I think the first thing to do is a time audit even if they're working 70 hours, do a time audit for one week, just writing down what you spend your time on and reflecting back. Are there things up there that you are doing that aren't adding value to to, to, to someone else, i.e. a company if you're working for them, or to yourself and trying to pull those out of your schedule? And I think if the answer is really no, then maybe you need to slow your journey down and open up time open up time for, for well-being because it's really, really important. You know, the type of kind of journey that I describe in this book is, is you know, I, I say it's a five-year journey. Really, I imagine if readers embrace this, that they'll do this over and over and over again, which means you can't be exhausted for your for your entire lifetime. Um, <laughs> and that's that strong resilience is, is exactly what, what you just described. It's about taking a step back, identifying the type of activities that really kind of fill you up you know, and this can be spending time with your family. It can be having, you know, I, I have a morning routine where I don't check any emails. I have time with myself to kind of think. I have a really nice breakfast and then my day, my, my day is off. But yes, I, I, those boundaries are really, really important. So for people who are struggling, I would absolutely encourage them to um, read chapter seven. Thank you for sharing that experience and for those tips. I, I think it's important to talk about resilience, especially in the present moment that we're in with COVID, um, where I know we're all struggling in, in some way to, to respond to that effectively and all, all of the changing elements um, that get thrown into our face day in, day out. Um, thinking sort of about the, the broad lessons of the book, we now have a goal, we have boundaries, sort of we have steps in place, um, I'm curious about the obstacles that might get in our way um, and specifically thinking about the cognitive biases that might slow us down both in ourselves and within others. Um, is that something that you could speak a little bit to? Absolutely. So, you know, if you think about your own career journey, there's going to be moments where you encounter people who's blind spot. Maybe they just don't slow down enough to hear you because they're busy and they're thinking about something else. Or maybe you are exposed to sexism or maybe you're exposed to racism or maybe you're exposed to some other you know, um, type, type of discrimination that stems from unconscious bias, which, which can be really, really hard to prove. And I think one of the first things that I, that I get people to do is really reflect on what is the proportion of, um, what is the ratio between the things that you're putting in your own way that are holding you back versus mm-hmm. other people? So if I think about your, if you think about what you might be putting in your own way, it could be, for example, that you succumb to the planning fallacy very often, which means that you plan to do things and you don't have enough time. And that actually ends up making you look like you're not particularly performing well for your employer, for example. Or the Mm -hmm. second thing is maybe you're somebody who worries a lot about failure 
and this is really common, um, anticipatory loss aversion. So the idea that I might put myself forward for something and actually fail in it is felt by us as an experience in itself, as if you're actually going through it. And, and very often, if you kind of look at self-reports, the anticipatory part causes more misery than actually failing. Because when, as humans, <laughs> we bounce back pretty well, actually, and we tend to underestimate our ability to bounce back. So from, you know, from, from, from your perspective, you know, you might want to think about does anticipatory loss aversion um, um, hold me back? And then also thinking about confirmation bias. Maybe you're somebody who really just seeks evidence that kind of confirm the beliefs that you're holding. And that's what's holding you back. So, you know, when we, when there's, there's a chapter really dedicated to get people to reflect on their inside and the types of biases that will hold them back in a way that has been shown to be linked towards poor career progression. Or kind of a poor a, a poor building of the future self to use the language of the book and then the second chapter is really thinking about these biases of others so thinking about whether or not there are ways to overcome those biases so when I work with companies I really try to get them to reflect on changing the people who have biases um because it you know this isn't this isn't really good from the perspective of an organization but of course as an individual affecting change in another person is really difficult so the book focuses on how do i circumvent those biases and i would say it does kind of two types of biases very very serious ones so the ones that arise from people looking at me as grace and making a decision that i don't look like a behavioral scientist simply because most of the other behavioral scientists happen to be men, right? So, and, and you know, if the representativeness heuristic is really, really powerful. Um, and there's an example in the book, and I won't give it away just in case people read it, but, you know, most people who've read the book so far have actually said that they, that they fell for it and they were surprised that they actually fell for it. This idea that we have an image of somebody and what they should look like and what happens if it's disconnected. So you can imagine if I'm trying to go through a career as a woman in behavioral science, science um, who didn't go to typical universities who train behavioral uh, scientists, that I might come up against some biases that will hold me back that have nothing to do with my skills, talent, and ability. Um, and that was the hardest part of the book for me to write. And my editors came back to me a couple of times and were saying, you know, you have to think again because there will be people who are experiencing racism who might read this, and there will be people who are experiencing sexism. And I think that you need to kind of give them more hope to be very honest with you um and i try and i try and do that but i think we have to acknowledge as well that there will be times when people need someone else to help them around that obstacle so you know if i'm somebody who's been racialized who's, who, who who is reading the book there will be tools that will help you um but they are pointing you in the direction of actually getting help from others sometimes and i even give my own email address from that and then there's the second type of biases for others which i think is much easier and these are the ones when people are just not paying attention to you in the way that you actually observe. So a really cool example of this is what happens if you have to pitch for funding? If, you have, if, you, if you're a startup company and you're pitching for funding, can you tip the odds in the favor simply by choosing a particular place in, the queue, in, in order to present? Um, and the answer is yes. So research really tells us that there are two effects that you might want to keep in mind. So the first is primacy effect which means that a person who presents first is much more likely to be judged accurately. And the second is recency effect, which means that a person who is presented last is much more likely to be remembered. 
So I think if you're in a competition and you're really sure of, of that you are the most quality ca- candidate, you're much more likely to choose the first spot. That's, that, will get, that will tip the odds in your favour, regardless of your skills, ability and talent. But I think if you're somebody who's in a tight competition and you acknowledge that, maybe there's lots of great competitors and you're a bit unsure whether your pitch is the best, to tip your odds in your favour, you should go last because you're then much more likely to be remembered because the gaps between attainment will be smaller in a competition where you have the you know kind of peers who are comparable to you. And really being honest about yourself, about the value that you're able to add and choosing based on that can tip the odds um, in your favour. And c- coming back to thinking about the ratios, getting people to recognise that you have your own biases that are holding you back, anticipatory loss aversion, um, confirmation bias, planning fallacy. And then you have these biases of others, some quite serious, and some are ones that actually we can tip in our favour pretty easy. Thinking about the ratio that in, in which they affect you. So for me at the moment in my career, I would say that 80% of my progress is within my own control. So 20% is, 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 is other people. And I would say if I look back to myself 10 years ago, when I was more at the beginning of my journey, it was probably more 50-50. I was much more reliant on other people in order to move me forward. Um, But still, I think recognizing that 50 is in my control. And as I move forward in my career, and as I get more authority in my profession, Mm. those ratios will actually change. It's really empowering because it means even if you're having a terrible time as a as a person in a job at the moment. And even if you really feel that you're the only person who's in the out group, that everyone else in your organization is in, is in the in group, there are things that you can do. And what I hope Think Big does is actually not just talk about the behavioral science behind it, but really give the practical steps that you can actually do and empowers people. And as I said, if it comes to the really serious crunch um, where there needs to be a discussion about a specific incident that might be happening to somebody, I would encourage readers to actually just send me an email and we'll have that discussion because um, nobody should be, no, nobody, I, I think it's 2021 and nobody should be stuck in a place um, because other people are, are, are absolutely keeping there. So it might be that I'll get you to see things slightly differently or it might be that we'll get help together. But I, I, I think for, for people who are looking to take control of their career, um, the Think Big journey is probably what you need. It's very generous of you to share that time and resource, Grace. Um, what I took away from what you just said is that self-awareness, finding good allies, and being really strategic about how we make use of the opportunities that we do have can sort of expand the the realm of what's in our control and increase our likelihood for success. Um, amidst all of that, Grace, do you believe in luck, or is it all just good planning? Yes, no, I mean, so so I think we need to differentiate between luck, which is born of privilege, and luck that is truly random. So I think if you're waiting for um, luck to land on your head for your career, I think it's a, I think it's a mistake, quite honestly. And a lot of my book is really trying to get you um, to create luck that ultimately is given to people who happen to be born privileged. So, you know, I speak a lot about kind of, generating networks that are actually around you that can help you advance in your career and really leveraging those networks at key moments and getting you to think twice about your network. Are your networks just surrounded by people like you or do you have a network that's truly diverse? 
my network now is absolutely truly truly diverse because I am convinced you know Adam Grant wrote this book recently um and he, and he supported this book so I really feel that I should say that his his book is, is absolutely amazing as you might expect um, and he talks a lot about unlearning and tactics to unlearn and of course one of the easiest ways if you want to embrace the idea of unlearning or you want to kind of get yourself kind of ahead in the world and accelerate your thinking process is to have conversations with people who have different perspectives mm. because this can be something that feels a little bit uncomfortable sometimes but because because they're disagreeing with you and, and, and all of us like to be told that, that we're right but it is such a good way to kind of think about outside the box and get yourself outside of of of, of, of the headspace that you're in that you're in in in, in a particular um in a particular moment um i've lost my train of talking but what was the what was what was the original question i'm not even sure i answered it that's okay i loved where you were going with it <laughs> uh, do you believe in luck or is it just all good planning perfect so the, so the importance of networks emphasize i think a lot of what we as people label as luck when we say and i, and I even use this expression in the book luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity mm-hmm. because opportunities come out of the blue but if yeah. you really stand back and say where did my last opportunity came from that rocked the boat for me? It's probably through your network. It might be very, very loose connections. Um, so we might have this conversation now, Kimberly, and in six months, there might be something that might come up that I would think Kimberly would be awesome for that. Mm. So, but you'll say when you relay it, oh, I was really lucky. Grace gave me an email and this opportunity is something that I'm really excited about. But actually you weren't because we're connected, we're connected to each other. Um, yeah. So I think the occasions that true luck that's random in the definition that we look at when we look up at the Oxford uh, Dictionary. The, the occasions that that influences our career, they're there, but they're much lower than people report them because they tend to conflate the idea of having good networks that give us, um, that give us these opportunities with being lucky in that particular being lucky in that particular moment. Um, and I will say, because I study gender a lot, women are much more likely to ascribe to themselves luck as something that actually got them to a particular place in their career. And men are much more likely to ascribe ability. And I'm doing some work mm. with a colleague at the LSE at the moment, um, Odessa Hamilton, which actually looks at, if we look at a systematic review of the literature, it also is a problem for the observer. So as a woman who looks at another woman, on average, much more likely to say she was lucky to end up where she was as compared to when judging a man. So again, do take care about what you might be labeling luck when you're when you're speaking out loud it could be that you've worked really hard to develop a network and you're just getting paid off because you've actually been quite reciprocal to those people in your network yeah um i think language that we use to describe ourselves and our accomplishment is so important and and that's something you touched on elsewhere in the book around sort of the narratives that we tell ourselves um about where we are and why we're there um, and I think that this power of a diverse network that challenges us is a, a really interesting and powerful tool to, um, to help us reshape that narrative and constantly question it and revise it as well. Um, so I hope that all of our listeners take that on board. Um, Grace, I'm conscious of our time um, and want to say thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, I think very often people look to psychology for silver bullets, um, which more often than they're not, more often than not, there are none. Um, but this book is a very important playbook of, um, of different opportunities to build a better future self. Um, and we're so thankful to you for, for coming on and, and sharing some of those with us today. It's been awesome. Thank you so much. And, you know, I always say 
time is our most precious resource so i really really appreciate your listeners giving me the privilege of their time when they've listened to this